traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Friday, October 14th, and a highlight clip containing the most actionable items from the podcast was released to premium subscribers on Monday, October 17th. This highlight clip was about 10 minutes in length, contains no ads or interruptions, and like I said, is limited just to the most actionable parts of the recording you are about to hear. This is just one of a number of benefits that are available to premium subscribers. You also get the entire podcast episode early and without ads or announcements, and you get the daily contrarian podcast and briefing every market day morning by 7 a.m. This gives you a brief lowdown on the highlights of the day ahead and events, earnings, and other things that are likely to move markets. Sign up at the website mentioned at the top, which is contrarian.supercast.com, or visit our substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. Prices are exactly the same at both websites, so are the benefits. So I look forward to speaking to you, hopefully, every market day morning. Otherwise, here is this week's podcast. Enjoy. Here with Chris Sidiel of the Ambrus Group, joining us to discuss tail risk hedging. This is a great topic. I'm actually surprised this this podcast has gone three years. Actually, we're in our fourth season without doing anything on tail risk hedging because this is the ultimate contrarian move. You take advantage of market activity, usually when it's good to take out insurance. At least that's my understanding for it, of it. Obviously, there's a lot more that gets into this. We will get into it. So let's start from the top, Chris. Tail risk hedging. Yeah, let's maybe just start from the from the basics on it. Yeah. So you know, first and foremost, you know, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, I, I think it's a really good topic for just the, the the nature of the show. Tail risk hedging is one of those really esoteric niche areas in the volatility landscape, right? Even when you think of the large allocators and investors who are in the community, 
even they still struggle with understanding what is tail risk and, and how do you really take advantage of it? So, you know, for, for what we do, we have uh, a hedge fund arm and we also have an RA form. And in a hedge fund vehicle, what we serve as is really like a protectionary hedge for an investor's overall portfolio. So let's say you have an investor that has, you know, investments in equities, alternatives, all sorts of things. Well, you would ask them, okay, what would happen to your portfolio if the equity market dropped, you know, 30% in a month? And let's say VIX went to like 70, you know, what, what would happen? And most people would say things like, oh, you know, I mean, defensive stocks or I'm in bonds or gold or, you know, traditional hedges like that. But what we've seen over the last 10 years is that those sort of traditional hedges have not really performed during moments of extreme market stress, right? And and specifically this year too, when you think of the whole 60-40, right? That's one of the worst performing vanilla blends that we've seen this year. So you say, okay, how do I make money in those type of environments? And, you know, enter in tail risk hedging, right? It's, It's that form where, you know, what we're doing for investors is the, our style of trading, uh, really seeks to generate these large returns when markets are crashing and dislocated. So in a perfect world, what this would look like is, let's say if markets are going up, we're trading, trying to be flat. And when markets are crashing, we're trying to return, you know, 200, 300%. These like very large returns is, is what our, our goal is. So it's really there to offset the losses for an investor in their investment, right? And the I say the sizing component is really crucial to this, right? Because you wouldn't put 100% of your portfolio in a tail risk hedge. But which, right. what you would realize is that if you put, you know, 5% of your portfolio in something like this, you know, it becomes non-existent when markets are rallying. But when markets are crashing, the convexity is there to really offset any losses. So it's like sophisticated insurance in a sense. Okay, so it does go beyond just mere insurance, though, because you are trying to get returns for for this, I guess, this slice of, of the allocation. So, so if I'm, I'm, it's not like I'm just giving you, I'm telling you, okay, here's my, here's my exposure and hedge it, um, because I guess anybody could buy puts on on and just roll them over, right? It's right. you actually want to get returns, so you're just like, I want something that's completely uncorrelated to my portfolio. And that will generate returns during when, when the other ones sell off, right? Right, right, yeah. exactly. So then this begs now begs the question, and you refer to trading because, and you referred to this at, at, in, in, your, in the start in your comments, the fact that traditional risk-off securities haven't worked this year, specifically bonds, right? Usually mm-hmm. when stocks go to hell, then bonds are kind of the safe haven that everybody flocks to. Not this year. In fact, since November 2021, stocks and bonds have sold off in lockstep, which is unusual. And it's you know, obviously due to inflation and, and Fed and such. So what is what do you do to protect somebody who has bond and stock exposure? Yeah, you know, so that's a really, really good question. And you know, it kind of reverts back into and maybe we're biased here, right? Because this is our way of 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 viewing the world, but it really reverts back into the volatility landscape and saying that, like, look, you know, if you use volatility as uh an asset class, right, to think about tail risk as its own asset class, it could really protect against these types of exogenous moves. So when you think uh, about what's taking place this year, a lot of people would argue and say that, well, Chris, 
look at the way how VIX is moving. Even the VIX is not really moving, right? So equity volatility is not really performing. And I would agree, right? It's, it's, it's definitely evident that equity volatility has been quite muted this year. However, if you look from a cross-asset standpoint in the rates market and in the FX market, you're having, you know, 10, 15 standard deviation type moves that are going on, right? So if you had a tail risk hedge or, you know, you were invested in, let's say a a macro-based tail risk hedge fund, you're doing phenomenal this year, right? Because you're those sorts of, uh, that, that type of convexity is paying out in a really big manner. So I think like one of the, one of the driving points of, you know, what we do too, is like on an educational base, we try to sit down with family offices, allocators, investors, and really explain to them, if you're really trying to make and design a holistic portfolio, there's so many different things that you could use in today's day and age with the way how so many you know, products have developed that you can have this sort of you know tail risk hedge fund in your portfolio so that you can protect against this sort of crash right the 60 40 thing you know there's a there's a better way to diversify a a, a portfolio than just saying okay 60 40 and that's it right yeah. you could be in some sort of cta protection you could mix it with long vol right you could have some commodity exposure it's like People should take advantage of all these sorts of things that that that's out there, and especially during a time like this, where the markets are showing you that hey, you should be more defensively focused as opposed to you know just trying to buy the dip every every single time. Yeah, well, which has not worked out very well. Okay, so but this is they are mostly vol based these these right. hedges that you put on. Yeah, you know, there's there's ways to do it with with multiple you know, derivatives contracts and, and exotics contracts. Um, like, you know, this is an example that I bring up to people many times. If you think about, you know, is it, is it as easy as buying a, a put on the S&P, right. right? So if you think about this and you go back to March of 2020, you'd realize, okay, if I bought, you know, some, let's say 10 Delta way out the money, one month puts on the S&P, right? And you put 10,000 bucks into that, right? I'm just using 10,000 as just a regular base. Well, great. You could have made, you know, 50 times the return on that. However, you know, if you understood the way how vol was and the way how, you know, vol reacts, you could have also bought a variant swap, you know, on the, on the S&P as well. And that variant swap would have paid out 250 times that $10,000 instead of 50 times. Right. So having an understanding in, in these structures and these payouts, you know, and these different derivatives and how you could structure derivatives, it, it can really increase the convexity. Got it. What, and so what is a variant swap, just to, to give us an idea here? Yeah. So, you know, it's a, a variant swap is, uh, is an over-the-counter product. It's, it's a swap that, that's really a exponential type of payout that occurs, right? So when you think of volatility, you know, people think about volatility and they're like, okay, you know, volatility is something that can get going quite fast. And then, you know, you think of a variant swap, it, it's pretty much volatility squared, right? Okay. So, so you know, it's it's multiples of what volatility could perform, right? So it, it's it's almost like this, this return profile is compounding. It's not just if volatility goes up, you know, two points, this is what it is. It's, it's compounding to four to 16 to, you know, continuously. Okay. So it's like, a, it's kind of like, is it like a deep out of the money, a call option of some kind or, or uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so it could be looked. You you can think of the payout profile when you're thinking about variance in 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 those regards, right? It could be you know upside variance and downside variance, upside yeah. variance on you know VIX, downside variance on the S and P. There, there's mm-hmm. a multitude of, of of ways you can you know structure these sorts of things. Um, but I think that the the important thing for for people to kind of get out of it, and, and one thing I would say is if you don't understand variance swaps, you know, don't try to go and and, and dive into it really what I'm getting at is that there's so many different types of products and there's different ways that you can structure even listed derivatives to replicate the payoff profile on some of these products mm-hmm. where you can really get that convexity for, for the average investor. That's the most important part, right? It's like, where can I get the, the biggest bang for my buck when I'm mm-hmm. thinking about hedge, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and my, you know, my philosophy on investing is more so lean towards a barbell approach where you are, long risk assets, but you have something that's on the other side that has, that offers convexity when mm-hmm. things go wrong, right? So you only put a few dollars down, but if you're, you know, if things go wrong, those, those few dollars could balloon into yeah. to, to quite a, quite a big amount. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the Holy grail. Of course, you want to be able to buy insurance on the cheap, as cheap as possible, and then get the big payouts enough to compensate you for whatever losses you have, I guess, in your long book. And these contracts, I mean, the, the variant swaps, just being one example, can can do that. But but they and they do deliver, like because like we said, like the VIX hasn't a mess of volatility, but that hasn't really done all that much this year either. Yeah, yeah, that's well, that's definitely you know a, a, a quick standout thing, right? It's it's also contingent on the environment that you're in. Whereas like you know you look at one month volatility, and and that's really what the VIX is right. It's, it's almost like replicating what a, what a variant swap would, would be or the strike of a variant swap. And, and, you know, you look at the way how one month volatility has reacted this year, it's been quite muted in equities, but if you were long swaps on, you know, FX vol, right. Like mm. let's say even on the dollar or something like that, right. The, the, the payout could be tremendously large yeah. Uh, yeah. or even, even in, in the rates market, right. Mm-hmm. If you long swaps or certain sort of structures and payouts, I think, you know, you could get onto a million type of, of nodes with these things. My background, um, you know, prior to this, I spent some time on, on the exotics desk at a large Canadian investment bank. Mm. And really, this is what the job was, right? It's like structuring these nodes, pricing mm. these complex nodes, like trying to hedge the risk for the bank. So that's kind of what, you know, really led me into, into starting this hedge fund was that, you know, you could do things like this to help out individual investors, family yeah. offices, fund of funds. Yeah. And thinking about the payoff profiles and the convexity is is one of the most crucial things when thinking about hedges. Totally, totally. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, so basically, you're it's so you have this product, I guess your your own fund, which people which is a tail risk fund, which people would invest in, um, and then you also separately will consult people and structure individual help them put them in individual swaps based on their portfolio or, or not. Yeah, yeah. So for okay. for larger institutions, we we definitely help out with like custom mandate solution yeah. thing, right? Because right. you know, you think of the investing world. There's so many things, like so many different nodes. Like if somebody asked me, Chris, can you uh, can you tell me what's the best stock to buy? Like I would have no clue. Right? That's just not my. my well, I don't think anybody would. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's not my ball game. So okay. there's there's things where there's these there's firms that will outsource their hedging as well. Sure, right? sure, sure. Like, you know, I want somebody I who understands this dynamic to help take care of it. So that's kind of uh, that's kind of how we we structure our business. Sick of me yet? 
become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Do you have any thoughts on, um, I don't know if you've been following the story out of the UK pensions and these liability-driven investments and how that's all played out. Um, and by the way, today was Friday, as we record this, was the deadline for the, I guess, the discount window, the BOE. Um, and we haven't heard anything from it, so I'm assuming it went smoothly. But that, did you look at that at all? Do you have any thoughts on, on that whole thing and what they were doing? Can you, can you educate us on that? Yeah, absolutely. So this gets into a, I'm, I'm going to dive a little bit deeper. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, so at the beginning of September uh, and and actually in uh, in early June, when we wrote up uh, our investor letters, we touched on uh, two things. And we, we one of the uh, main things that, that we touched on in both letters was the liquidity in private markets affecting the public markets. Right. And when you think of what has transpired in the investing world over the last like 10 years, there's been so many people that have been investing in private markets, right? So like on paper, people are getting crazy rich on these type of VC funds and, you know, these private investments and every single month, right? They're up 2%, up 2%, up 2%, right? And they're like, oh, I'm doing phenomenal. But there's a, there's a quote unquote liquidity tax that comes with that, right? Because you may be up 200 something percent uh, on paper, but when it's time to pull your money out, you know, you're not able to get the full amount of money that's, that's, that's transpiring there. Right. So maybe when you're pulling your money out, instead of being up, up, you know, 200%, you're down 20%, which is, I'm kind of exaggerating here. Right. But, but there can be large disparity in this. And that's due to the lockup provisions in the fund or well, uh, I would say that that's due to a number of things, right. Where like, you know, the, the, the private vehicles aren't necessarily doing as well as, you know, they were kind of making it seem right to, to be able to liquidate and get that sort of cash to give back to those investors are, are a little bit difficult. So in a time like, like this year where, and, and, and by the way, like this was the narrative with a lot of pension plants, like family offices, pension funds, like everybody wanted private investments specifically like, since 2020, right? People were like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about private markets, right? I'm not even concerned about public markets. And then what you notice this year is that some of these larger institutions are struggling with getting that liquidity out of the private markets. So what ends up happening when you are a large pension and you have certain mandates in terms of what what what's the liquidity ratio that you could and should be providing well that has a reflexive impact on what you can do in the public markets right because in the public markets now you're saying shoot you know in this basket i can't get my money out of these private funds but as a pension plan i need to be able to give that money to you know the people who have pensions so how am I going to get that money? Where am I going to get the liquidity? Well, I need to sell in the public markets now, right? So I, instead of me selling these private investments, I'm going to sell public equities, right? So U.S. stocks, um, obviously uh, European stocks, things like that, uh, treasuries. And what was going on with the BOEs, right? You know, the BOE understood that the move that was taking place in the guilt market was having a big effect with the way how these pension plans were marked, right? Because these pension plans, as a, as a pension plan, you have to, as I was saying, you know, keep a certain type of liquidity. 
Um, and, you know, then they were talking about not supporting the pension plans. This could have a really big type of domino effect if these larger pension plans are not funded. Um, and it could really destroy uh, public markets in a, in a really big way, right? I mean, think of a world where you have, and I'm not saying that this is the case right now, but if you do continue to see pension stress, imagine these large pensions having to liquidate their public holdings. I mean, you know, that's what leads to stock market crashes or, you know, uh, crashes in the bond market. So and bank runs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's really what's going on from like a 30,000 foot view. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Now what does one do when the market's been selling off already and you're already down 30% and you have to make a decision or either, whether you want to protect against more downside because you can't really justify taking on more risk, but at the same time, you don't know things are going to go lower. So what does one do then? Yeah. So that, that right there, what you said is like the, it's like the beauty in, in a strategy like ours, because investors who have a tail risk hedge are able to take on more risk, right? Because they understand that it's almost like you have like a synthetic put, right? If you understand, yeah. okay, if I have that put to the downside, like, sure, I can max out the amount of equities that I could be buying now. And, and that's the value added, in it, right? It's being able to buy assets extremely discounted when everybody else is selling because you understand that, yeah, I have a hedge of a, a backstop, right? This is my backstop. And if things go wrong, great. I'm making a ton of money on my backstop. That's going to offset the losses. And if things go right, well, I'm only losing a, t- a little bit of money on, on the, that backstop, but I'm making a ton of money on all the, the assets that I just purchased. And there's something when you think about like portfolio construction, that's called variance drag. And it's it's a lot more uh, it's a lot more simple than than, than it sounds. But really, what it is is when you take uh, two portfolios, the one with the higher volatility in it, right? So the more the drawdowns, the returns uh, are really decayed. So what you realize is that if you're able to sidestep those large those large drawdowns, you're able to compound gains at a higher rate. So one of the things that we show to you know, potential investors is this chart of the S&P over the last 15 years. And we're like, okay, if you take out, this is like really powerful in, in my opinion, at least, if you take out the five largest drawdowns in the S&P over the last 15 years on a 20-day cycle. So like, let's just say every, like on a 20-day market crash, one of the five largest ones of the last 15 years, remove that, right? Imagine if I just sidestep that. The portfolio return actually quadruples. And that's just like the biggest thing for us because it, it shows the value add in having a hedge because like as a large institution, you're talking about making, you know, $400 million instead of $100 million over, you know, uh, 15 yeah. No doubt I can see the allure, but still those would have to be hedges that you had put on already. Um, you know, it's not like you can go back in time. It would be great if you could, then we'd all be yeah. rich. But yeah. Um, so what does one do in an environment like this? So like do people are people still looking to hedge um to take on the to build these uh I guess models where that where they would gain a lot if there's a bigger crash? Or yeah, what kind of stuff are you seeing? Yeah, so the interesting thing about the equity space is that vol is still giving you a chance to hedge, you know, and if you believe if you believe that this is a bear market, 
you know, historically bear markets end with large capitulations, right? That's like a, a historical fact, whether you want to toggle U.S. equities to German equities, regardless, right? Like bear markets end with capitulation. And if you believe that that is going to come, then, you know, you're really in, in the band camp that a big volatility move is getting ready to happen. Mm-hmm. And this whole sort of slow train wreck that has happened this year has still allowed people to get in and hedge. So as you know, traditionally you wouldn't be able to get in and hedge, uh, but there is a still, there is still a chance to hedge your equity exposure. Mm-hmm. However, in like the whole FX and rates market, that's a little more challenging. You know, if you have, if you have, you know, big exposure to the way how FX or FX vaults are moving, you know, that would be a, a challenge. So I would say equities is probably the last ship that has not set sail yet. Interesting. <laughs> in, wow. In, Despite all the drawdowns we've already seen. Wow. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, like this isn't a uh, this isn't a view from us, right? It's it's an it's an objective thing. When you look yeah. at the how VIX and VIX balls are pricing, it's you know, you still have a chance to hedge the other complex. Very interesting. And what about um what about the dollar? Um and you know there's been some talk now the dollar trade may finally unwind, but uh who I mean with the Fed still hiking rates, it's kind of hard to see that. Is there no space to hedge for for their dollar gains? Are people still looking to do that? Uh, yeah, that's one of those ships that I think have. have you think? In my opinion, I, I think that's kind of set sail. I, I mean, you look at you look at dollar skew and the way how it's reacted. Um, you know, people are it's it's come down a little bit, but then you get these these scares that are you know take place in the FX market, and those balls really really start to to lift up. So it's not as uh, it's not as cost efficient to to try to hedge now. And that's really you know that's really one of the things too when when you're an investor that you should be thinking of is like. You know, you shouldn't be trying to get your hedges, um, you know, when, the, when your home is on fire, right? Like you should yeah, buy. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a psychological thing with most investors, right? Because when you think of like, and this is something that we deal with too, right? If you think of a tail risk hedge in a year like 2021, when equities went up 20 something percent, right? Most investors want to see, oh yeah, are, are you guys making money too, right? Did you make, you know, 20 something percent, right? Where it's like, that's not really the goal, right? You should... If you have a hedge that is slightly down, right, but offers massive upside convexity, that is the value add. Yeah. So psychologically, it's hard for investors to really digest this, this understanding of that. But the ones that do, right, they, they do quite well. And, yeah. and you know, one of the, um, the things that I think about all the time is like, and this is public information, by the way, like a, a large prop firm like Jane Street, right? Jane Street is one of the biggest uh and best prop firms that that's out there um not only in the quant world quant world but but in general and when you look at what jane street does jane street allocates a portion to just buy a ton of tails right they have this this thing where they're buying a a ton of tails because what they understand is that when markets go haywire they want to be capitalized to not only make money but put that money to use in other areas that, that are dislocated. So yeah. they're okay with losing money, you know, on some of their hedge as the time goes on. And it's just really like a psychological thing that, that I think most yeah. investors still have to come around to. Yeah, no question. And a lot of that gets into human nature, right? Like when things are going great, you want to lever up and juice all you can out of the returns, you know, FOMO and such. And then when things are bad, you want to run away and hide. But that's when the stuff is most expensive. So this is when 
obviously contrarians make their money, I guess, as long as they stick to their their knitting. Yeah, so that's 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 really interesting. Okay, Chris City, I want to come back and ask you some more questions. Look into your background a little bit. That sounds kind of uh, big brother. Not look into your but just discuss your background, how you got into this this space. Um, but I want to first take a quick break and uh, let our sponsors be heard. If you're a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get the break. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And if you want to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com, whole bunch of benefits including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Here with Chris Sidiel, the Ambrus Group, discussing tail risking, the ultimate contrarian move, because when times are good, you want to protect yourself, and when times are bad, I guess you just want to kind of be happy that you did. A lot of people didn't, and they are now feeling the pain. But let's first talk more, uh, Chris. This is the segment of the show where we find out more about our guests and and what got them interested in in investing in the first place, and a little bit about their career path, um, as general or specific as you want to get to where they find themselves now. So yeah, take it away and tell her. Yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, growing up, I was always. Uh, Focused on on stats, um, you know, I I started early off. You, you guys are gonna get a kick out of this, but uh, I was into uh, sports gambling as a oh. as a teenager. Um, funny enough, during this time, sports gambling wasn't even allowed in the U.S. <laughs> so, right. um, but yeah, so obviously, you, know, you only did it in legal jurisdictions. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll stick with that one. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, no, I was I was interested in that. I think I always had the mentality of a speculator. Then I, you know, was was definitely blessed to uh, get a job as a junior under this veteran from the CBOE. Uh, his name is Bob Cantor. Um, you know, Bob was this big legend coming up in the uh, 80s and the 90s. He ran uh, ETG for a number of years. Um, so very well-known vault trader. And yeah, you know, learned, uh, learned a good amount under him where I was, you know, really, I, I would say getting my first view of thinking about vault in terms of like, convexity and outliers and, and, and things of that, that nature. Um, then I went on to, uh, to the prop side. Um, I was part of a prop trading firm um, and two of them actually, you know, one was categorized as like a buy side equity hedge fund, but was ran by you know, a couple of XG2 guys. Um, and then I went to a large Canadian investment bank. Uh, most of my time was on the exotic derivatives and listed options desk. And when you're on a desk like that, you know, you're, you're thinking about all these different sort of paths that, that are taking place with the way how the portfolio is moving, the way how it could move. You know, it's just like a bunch of things that are, that are going on in there. Uh, and, and then, yeah, you know, March of 2020 came and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you were an exotics book at, at any firm and, you know, you were long volatility, you, you've done, uh, you know, quite well, um, you know, and it, it really had me thinking about, these sort of structures and payouts and and the way how you could kind kind of combine things from the prop side to also you know these sort of exotic structures and you could put together this sort of book that mm. looks to be close to flat if markets are rallying but then you know make a ton of money when markets are are, are going down mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and yeah you know we we here we are you know at, at ambrus um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So quite the journey so far Interesting. So do you deal at all with structured notes? Um, is that part of what these exotics is, or is that something else? Yeah. So one of the parts in our book, uh, it, it is categorized as, as a note, you know, sometimes yeah. we deal with some of these like ETPs and things like that. Um, you know, the way how these payoffs are, you could kind of like structure the listed derivatives so that they pay off like some sort of OTC stuff. And so I think all those sorts of things are helpful in terms yeah. of you know, yeah. accomplishing that. Yeah. That's it. You know, the reason I asked is because we had a guy uh, at Bloomberg who ran a structured notes newsletter and a couple of times he was on vacation or something and I had to edit it for him. And it was, uh, it was crazy. I mean, talk about sports gambling. Like you could actually, this is before sports gambling was legal, but you could kind of structure these things like based on who wins a Super Bowl and what the weather is, I'm going to get a payout of so-and-so much above the S&P 500, you know, like, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I, I get a kick out of these things, right? Because like when you go to a casino, all right, like, like been, and the, here we go into like more so like sports betting and, and just mm. being a speculator in general, right? Like if you go to a casino and you say, okay, I'm going to play roulette and I'm going to run a martingale process on the roulette table. Well, it won't work, right? Because one, you need an infinite bankroll. And then the second thing is that the, the casinos limit your betting size, right? But there's an optimal point in you going to a casino, right? Maybe you could go to the casino, you know, somewhere down the road and the rules are different. And that changes the dynamic of the game tremendously, right? So like when you think of like Ed Thorpe back in the days, you know, obviously a well-known hedge fund manager and trader, 
they had to change the game because Thorpe was, was, you know, destroying the casinos. And when I think of like the exotics world and, and, you know, these sort of payouts and things like that, it's almost like, you know, you're toggling the game because there is a point where there's enough value to take the bet. And as a terrorist trader, that's how you should be thinking about things. Right. So it's like, maybe in the listed market, I'm only going to get paid out one to a hundred on this. But, you know, if you're structuring something on the exotic side, like what you were saying, like maybe something on the weather or something like that, right? Yeah. You're taking something that's correlated to that same S&P type put, but you're getting a thousand times the payout, right? I'm, I'm just making yeah. it up, but I'm just saying. Yeah. So. How, how big of a systemic risk do you think that might be? Because especially if you're the one that's writing these 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 uh, contracts, right? Because then you're on the hook. Do the, do the banks, do they hedge that out or do they, they must some of it, right? Yeah, so so we uh, we wrote a white paper in uh, May of this year uh, talking about volatility and the changing microstructure in U.S. equities. And one of the one of the things in the paper that uh, I think a lot of people got value from was understanding how the growth of structured products has this reflexive type uh, dynamic on the way how the listed options market is. Because what will end up happening is. If you're a dealer, right, post Dodd-Frank, now what ends up happening is you have to keep a Delta neutral book, right, or, or a book that, that's somewhat limited, right? You can't take on that same amount of risk that you did back in the day. So what ends up happening is you, you uh, go out, structure these notes, price them, trade them. But then if you're doing like millions of dollars in that, you're going out into the listed options market and you're moving the listed options market by because you need to hedge your, your exposure. Right. And, and when you think of the crash of 2020, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of that was driven from people that were short variants. Right. These these variant swaps. There were a ton of people for for, you know, years that were shorting volatility, shorting variant swaps and, and making a little bit of money. And what ended up happening is when things started to blow up, they need to hedge that. Right. They were hedging with fixed futures. They were driving volatility up. Um, there, there is that, that systemic risk that exists, um, especially because the structured products market in the U S continues to get bigger. I I wouldn't say that it's a massive risk right now. I'd say it's, you know, still very well contained and small, but it's an area that, you know, with anything in financial markets, if, if there's too much concentration in there, it could become, it could become a hazard eventually. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the banks have to no longer have their own prop desks is is huge one would think in terms of removing that risk but then there's others that are that we maybe aren't aware of and that's that's one the whole pension thing kind of was uh because pensions are these massive massive uh you know large pools of capital and they're doing all kinds of stuff so maybe yeah and there's a counterparty on the hook there somewhere so yeah one thing i'd I'd like to ask maybe uh, towards the end here is uh, and I like to ask this as people, and you as a, as a tail risk guy is, is particularly pertinent. What is what right now has you up at night? Uh, proverbially, I'm, I'm not asking about your sleeping habits, but what is what are you worried about? One of the things about being a, a tail risk manager is that you have to understand that things are tail risks because uh, you're not able to see it coming. Right? It, it wouldn't be tail risk if you could identify it right then it's like you never see the bullet that kills you yep yep no that's 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 absolutely true and, and we really operate on the, on that belief that no matter what we won't be able to see it we won't be able to time it you know it's pointless in trying to identify it and time it and and even when you look at 
everything that's going on right now, right? Like, I feel like every single day I'm waking up and you're seeing some sort of new headline from, you know, something going on in Russia to, you know, the potential issues going on with, with China and Taiwan, um, you know, obviously domestic policy in the U S you know, is, is, is really big. You're hearing about this thing from the BOE and the market, right? Like I, I personally think that there is a systemic hazard that is taking place under the hood right now in the derivative market. Hmm. Um, you know, not a lot of people, I think, fully understand the reflexivity that exists in, in the U.S. equity market because of this derivative exposure. When you look at what, what, what this driver is, a, a lot of it is like zero DTE options, right? Because of more and more and more and more options are being uh, kind of put out there, right? More gamma hedging that's taking place between these, these dealers and, and the exposure that, that they have to, to, to uh, kind of account for. And we saw it during 2021 where, you know, you saw the whole GameStop thing, mm. um, right? The whole AMC thing. And everybody was like, oh, this is what dealer gamma hedging is. But that's just one small pocket, right? This is taking place on the index level. This is taking place. And, uh, you know, people will argue that, yeah, that's being offset by other additional flows. And I agree with that. However, my view is that when you're faced with an exogenous event, Right when you're faced with an event where everybody wants to hit the exit doors at the exact same time, and these are the way how options are being traded, you're going to see a very very different market, and we've yet to see that. Right, because this year the sentiment has been negative, but there has not been any panic, and, and I think that that's undeniable the way how falls are priced, and, and and even if you just talk to people, right, like I feel like I talk to a. a more investors than the average person, you know, and, and a, a slew of different investors from high net worth individuals to really large institutions to, you know, just people who are family offices and, you know, just some personal friends and nobody seems to be in panic, right? Everybody's like, yeah, yeah. You know, my portfolio is down like, you know, 10% or something like that. Not that bad, but you know, you start talking about sliding down, you know, 20% more and, and people don't really fathom that, right. They're like, no, uh, you know, that that's not going to happen, you know, but the reality is, is that this is how markets work, right? It, it can happen. Um, and the hazard that I see coming from that is if, if people start all panicking at the same time in an exogenous event, right? If God forbid, there's some sort of nuclear bomb or something like that, right? It could really create this reflexive market that gets driven down much, much, much faster than, than people believe. So mm-hmm. when people talk about, you know, and this is in the white paper that, that we discuss when people talk about 1987 can't happen again because of the circuit breakers and, and you know, structurally things are different. I hate to sound like a perma bear, you know, just like the crazy guy in the room. But the view is really that, no, the stock market is showing you that it could move, you know, seven or eight percent both ways in a matter of less than, you know, two trading days. It's showing you you can do that. If things go haywire, it can absolutely go down 20% a day. That is like a undeniable fact. So I think structurally some things are, are very different in this, in this market. Um, and I think that with all the tensions that are going on, it's just something that people have to account for uh, much tighter than they, they, they personally did. You know, a lot of people 
I think have this view that they could tactically get out of markets before something happens. And, and CTAs have done well doing that, you know, specifically this year, CTAs have, have done tremendously well, but you know, if you play the game long enough, you're going to get double zero a couple of times yeah. and you're bound to have a day where you wake up where the market is down 10% overnight. It's just, it's just a fact, right? Like whether, you know, whether it comes tomorrow, whether it comes in five, 10 years, like that will happen. Right. The, and I think that structurally everything that, you know, we just mentioned amplifies uh, what can take place if that happens. Mm. How much of a risk is it that the regulators are kind of asleep at the switch or, I mean, Dodd-Frank, it sounds like it was probably pretty good legislation as we discussed, but I just remember seeing, you know, go back, go back to the, the GameStop thing last year, was it early in 2021, they had those hearings in Washington and all these senators and, and congressmen got up and, and I was shocked. I shouldn't have been maybe, but I was shocked at just how idiotic these people were and just how clueless when it comes to like very, very basic stuff, like the difference between private and public markets, like it was just not something that seemed to, they seemed to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Granted, that's high level, right? These aren't people at the CFTC or whatever, but still, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, like that's one of the uh, big things that I would say too, is that, you know, when I look at, when I look at some of uh, what was said during those meetings and, you know, I, I go back and, and, and I view them, you could tell that there was a little bit of like uh, chess puffing out, right. Where people just wanted to say things to, to act like they were an author- authoritative figure. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Whereas they were kind of not really getting to the, the crux of, you know, what was going on, what went wrong, like structurally what was going on. Some people didn't want to acknowledge that. So it was like, it's almost like everybody had their time to shine and they were trying to use it as a, as a time to shine as opposed to like trying to figure out like these sort of structural flaws and, and, and how to potentially fix it. In my view, and, and there's a lot of people who are derivative traders that would argue the against this, but I actually think Dodd-Frank harmed, harmed the market to an extent because it adds to this reflexivity. And I'll give you guys, like, I'll give you a, a perfect example, right? If you were a trader uh, on a desk back in the day and Apple stock was going against you, right? You could inventory more Apple stock, right? And some people would say, okay, well, that leads to larger blowups when, when they occur, right? Because you're able to just say, no, keep giving me Apple stock, you know, forget it. I'll, I'll buy more, I'll buy more. But today what ends up happening is that, you know, if you're, like if, if you have like, let's say, let's say you're short Apple puts, right. As a dealer. So like, let's say somebody comes in and buys Apple puts, right. What do you have to do? Well, immediately you have to sell Apple stock, right. Because you have to be Delta hedge. And if you're doing this with large enough size, synthetically, that's driving the price of Apple lower, right. As the Delta in the puts are increasing. So you're synthetically driving the market lower so that, Excess frequency to hedge, which is what Dodd Frank had implemented, right? Dodd Frank pretty much said that, you know, like got, you can't take speculative risk and you need to hedge up this risk. So it leads to more excessive hedging, which leads to these type of cascading effects as opposed to, you know, what you saw previously in, in prior to 08. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm not intelligent enough to understand structurally how to suggest a better regulatory fix in the markets. But I do think that there are some things that, you know, are not as, as not as secure as, as most people think, 
you know, like most people, especially, especially like on the regulatory side, um, you know, and, and if you sit in front of screens and engage in markets all day, you start realizing like, oh shoot, like this shouldn't be doing this. You know, like one of the big topics Goldman had uh, at the early part of this year was that the top of the order book, the liquidity has been pretty light in the ES. And that's really true. It's like, you know, we're, we're not a huge hedge fund by, by any means. We're a small size hedge fund and we could come through and, you know, really tackle the, the yeah. order book, which is like, that, that's kind of scary when you think about that, right? At certain times of the day, if, if one smaller size hedge fund could come in and, and, and really move that, that, that market that way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I wish I had an answer, but I, yeah, I, I no, that, well, that was a pretty, pretty interesting answer right there. How much of it is that the, the counterparties have been a little bit more obfuscated because it used to be, yeah, you would you would know who these people were, but now if it's all hedged out, like where does it go? And do we know who's holding this stuff and who's on the hook? And to unravel this, wouldn't it take more time or is it is it not that complex? Yeah, no, so, so that's the other thing too, is that, you know, you think about the exposure and where the exposure is going. And I have this argument that everybody is exposed to the same thing. You know, when you talk about, when you talk about, um, you know, the the growth of, of ETFs, right. And the growth of passive investing and, and the growth of, of some of these, these pension plans and, and things like that. And I use this example, if you walk into a room, a bar on a Friday night, how many people in that room is in some way, shape or form invested in Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Facebook, right? It's like, it's like correlation risk in this market is, is tremendous. We haven't, we just haven't been like, we haven't experienced it yet. Uh, but if you're faced with that sort of crash, you know, that sort of panic, you will experience that because there's, there's no way that everybody's holding the same thing. And then you think of like, the Black Rocks of the world, right? And the State Streets of the world and these huge, huge institutions that are just packaging the exact same thing and just tossing them off to, to people. Um, and, you know, it, it, it makes you wonder like, oh, wow, like, I wonder if like Apple stock, you know, crashes tomorrow, you know, how much of the market it would draw down with it, right? And I'm not talking about a slow grind, I'm talking about like a real crash. Uh, so I, I think uh, concentration risk is, is much more relevant in this market when you experience a crash than in almost in any other market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at the 13Fs, you mentioned BlackRock. I wonder if you could find a single S&P stock where BlackRock isn't listed on the 13Fs in the top 10. <laughs> you probably can't, right? I mean, seriously, have you ever seen a stock where like looking at, <laughs> maybe you can, I, I don't know, maybe the smaller ones, but they, yeah, that's, and that's just illustrates what you're talking about. Very good. Interesting. A last question I want to ask you, any thoughts on, on digital currencies, cryptos and such? <laughs> yeah. I mean, no. I'm afraid I, of that. <laughs> you can be here all day. No, go on. Yeah, let's, let's see where it goes. Yeah. No, no, no. You know, I think, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting time. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a crypto trader, uh, by any means. Um, you know, I, I think just from a timing perspective, you know, starting, starting this hedge fund and, and stuff like that, you know, the last three years has been, taking up the majority of my time. So I've never really like dabbled in crypto, but from a, from a guy who's a, who's a trader, you know, I'm looking on the outside and I'm saying that generally when you think of times of opportunity, they come when, when everybody don't like, doesn't want to touch it. Um, so I think there could be some opportunity there, you know, are kind of throwing everything out. And, and there's some stuff that's nonsense that was obviously uncovered you know, this year, right? Tons of scams and frauds and, and, and all that's getting, 
you know, kind of kind of weeded out um, the same way, like in 2001, right? Like it uses the exact same thing, like 2001, where all these sort of like uh, tech scams kind of got weeded out. But when you look forward, you know, four or five years, you realize that, well, there were some core, you know, tech companies. And I think we're seeing the exact same thing. Um, you know, so I won't stand behind any coin or anything like that. But I do think that it is um, an interesting area that that could be making its way uh, into the way how the economy works um, mm. going forward. Even though there's no use case for it, the for the actual currencies? You know, that's the other thing too, is that um, I think it's, I'm more so saying, I'm more so talking about the technology itself. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. Like, like the blockchain technology and, and yeah, that's what I said. I, I'm, I'm not saying Ethereum or Bitcoin or anything like that because, you know, there's, you're, you're hearing talks of, of um, you know, some, some sovereign funds talking about uh, the interest in um, governments making some sort of digi coin and things like that. Yeah. So, so there could be that, right? But I'm more so talking about the technology oh, going sure. forward. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's certainly interesting. Yeah, we've had a little bit of talk about that on here. Um, all right, cool. All right, Chris Sidiel, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. A very interesting and off-the-cuff conversation here, which hopefully le- left our, our listeners with a lot to, I'm sure it did, think about. Um, so with that in mind, can you tell us where they can find out more about you, potentially how to get in touch and I'll put that in the show notes, along with if you if you if it's public, the the, the white papers you mentioned. Um, yeah, I'd like absolutely. to link the, to those as well. But yeah, yeah. absolutely. So um, so you know, you guys could find me uh, on LinkedIn, Chris Sidio. Uh, you guys could find me uh, at ambrosgroup.com. Um, also, you know, Twitter K S I D I I I. And uh, yeah, our, our uh, link for the white paper, it, it's uh, floating around out there. Feel free to reach out on ambersgroup.com. We just provide it to you as well. Um, but yeah, you know, if you guys are thinking about any tail risk stuff, feel free to reach out. We always like talking markets. Cool, cool. As do I. Very interesting. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all for listening. And with that, we leave you uh, and look forward to speaking to you again next week. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.